0: ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald.
1: Good afternoon, and this is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group, and I want to dedicate today's show to Tiffany Topsick, uh, one of our board members that passed on this week. And uh, just thank her for all of her amazing service to the Executive Girlfriends Group and really to furthering uh, the cause for women in the travel industry. Tiffany uh, held a a bunch of amazing roles. I won't go into all of them now, but, uh, again, just want to remember her and also to encourage everybody just to uh, thank all of the people in your lives that that are around so that they know uh, that you love them and, and that you appreciate them. Let's uh, turn our attention now on that note to uh, our interview for today. And I am so thrilled to have Whitney Johnson back with us. I interviewed her several years ago, uh, her book Dare, Dream, Do. Whitney, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure, and your current book is really, really an interesting one for me because I consider myself quite the disruptor uh, in my own industry, and, and uh, currently I'm building a new technology uh, company uh, with that absolute focus in mind, but I love the title of this one, and, and I take it uh, both personally and Professionally, from a corporate standpoint, the title of your book is "Disrupt Yourself," and and the tagline is "Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work." So, Whitney, I, I, for those who don't know you and who didn't hear your previous interview, can you give us the thumbnail of your background? Because I know your relationship with Clayton Christensen has a whole lot to do with this focus on disruption. Yes, absolutely.
0: I'd be happy to. Uh, My, 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 where do I start? Let's see. I started, it's like, where do you start with a relationship with someone? All right. Well, I first connected with Clayton Christensen about 10 years ago. And um, I, I think where his ideas really just captured my attention is that at the time I was working as an equity analyst on Wall Street. I was at Merrill Lynch and I was covering uh stocks in Latin America and specifically I was looking at the um, telecom industry in Mexico. And one of the things I discovered at that point in time is that I would I was covering a company called American Mobile. It's the fourth largest cellular company in the world and every you know quarter I would have to put up my forecast for how much I thought wireless penetration was going to grow because that was one of the key inputs into the model. And one of the things I discovered is that every time, every quarter, I I would put out these what I thought were pretty aggressive forecasts and just kept beating and beating and beating my forecasts. And at the same time, wireline um, in Mexico was just sort of stagnant. And as I came across uh, Clayton Christensen's work on disruptive innovation, how a low-end or new market innovation can eventually upend an industry, those frameworks really helped me understand what I was seeing happening in Mexico is that even though wireless had been introduced just just a few years earlier and had started at 1% when Wireline was at 15 and now it was at 25% and eventually going to go to where it is today at 90%, that I was seeing this low-end disruptor that initially where the sound quality had been very, very inferior was just completely upending the Wireline industry. And so as I really started to get familiar with those frameworks, I realized that they were helping me understand what was happening in Mexico and was very intrigued by that because I realized, oh, I didn't need to just be surprised by this, but they helped me explain what was happening. So that was one of my first touch points with the theories of of Clayton Christensen. Um, The more I looked at these frameworks, the more persuaded I was. and In fact, I had this experience. It was probably early, mid-2004. I was still at Maryland, and I remember reading The Innovator's Dilemma and coming to this part where I realized that there were a lot of things that I wanted to accomplish in my career that if I stayed where I was trying to move along, chug along in my career, I wasn't going to be able to make those things happen. And effectively, I was going to have to disrupt myself and leave corporate America in my particular instance and try something new. And and you were at the top
1: of your game, too. I was
0: absolutely at the top of my game. And I guess, you know, just to give you a little bit more information there, um, you know, I had started my career as a secretary working on Wall Street um, because I had majored in music. And so I started as a secretary because I couldn't get really any other job. And then I worked my way up to become an investment banker and then an equity analyst. And when I left Wall Street in 2005, as you said, I was at the top of my game. At that point, I was an award winning analyst. I was ranked by institutional investor, which is like the highest designation, if you will. And I had made the decision that I was going to leave all of that and literally become an entrepreneur. And when I became an entrepreneur, I Eventually made my way to Clayton Christensen and was working with him on a number of nonprofit projects. And then when he was ready to start an investment firm that would invest in disruptive stocks and companies, I joined him as a founding partner. So his frameworks have become obviously very um, foundational to my thinking and this idea of disrupt yourself. But then I also had the privilege of being able to work with him for the better part of a decade.
1: Well, and what an amazing story. Uh, you know, the real life working girl. <laughs> you know, when you yes, think back to that true. movie of it's of <laughs> uh, you know, having someone who who believed in you enough to allow you that is is already amazing, but then to leave at the top of your game and to really, you know, what we call eat your own dog food, if you're going to talk about disruption, you know, disrupting your own career at the height of your game uh was a, a really Super gutsy move, but if you're going to do it, doing it with him was was an amazing bet.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and and the thing that I think is important though, as as we're having this conversation, is that when I first left Wall Street, I didn't know it was going to be with him. I mean, my initial you know leaving of Wall Street in 2005 was I was going to write a children's book, and I was going to produce a reality TV show about soccer in Latin America. And so <laughs> I I mean this was like a free fall. And this is 2005 and I knew that I wasn't going back because I didn't keep my financial models, but it was only through sort of the next year and a half in working with him on these nonprofit things that it evolved into actually co-founding this firm, which I think really goes to this idea that we're gonna talk about today, which is when you disrupt yourself, you're jumping from you know the top of a curve or the top of a mountain to the valley or the top of a wave to a new wave. And there is a moment of free fall where you don't know What's going to happen? And that's part of the, the fear and the exhilaration of, of trying something new.
1: Well, and that's a, a perfect lead-in to to how you have structured the book because you, you begin – uh, in this book, talking about taking the right risks and i, I don 't remember whether it was in the first chapter or in, in the introduction where you talk um, actually about Toyota as, as another example of someone who came in with a low pr- price model and an, and then truly an inferior model uh, of car right. when you think about the original Corolla and then using that foot in the door if you will to um, you know to really ramp up to where they are today. And, and you know, I, I don't remember what the statistics are off the top of my head, but I mean, it was a great bet for them. Uh, to come into the U.S. Yeah.
0: with that product. Yeah, I mean, what what's exciting, I mean, what, if you if you think about this theory of disruption, um, what it says is that the odds of success are going to be six times higher and the revenue opportunity 20 times greater when you pursue a disruptive course. And you just mentioned Toyota. They came in very much at the low end of the market. They were completely dismissed, and that's often what happens with a low-end disruptor. People look at it, and they just say it's this silly little thing. Same thing right. that Barnes and & Noble and Borders did with, with Amazon. It's just this silly little thing. Same thing. Thing the yellow cab industry has done with Uber. It's just a silly little thing. Same thing that what happened with wireless in Latin America. It's mm-hmm. just a silly little thing where the, you know, the product quality is inferior. And same thing that happened with me when I started on Wall Street as a secretary. Just this silly little thing. But then <laughs> right. once the disruptor secures this foothold at the low end of the market where no one's really paying attention to them so they kind of have this cover of, of being inferior, they're also motivated by bigger and faster and better and improving And so they're motivated to start getting better and better and better. And because they've started out at a lower price point or found this unique place in the market, they're eventually eventually able to topple the incumbents, whether it's a a person or or a company.
1: And you you also introduce, um, in the beginning of the book, this whole concept of the S-curve. Can, yes. can you set the stage with that? Because I think that that's really important in understanding, you know, the other things that you talk about within the
0: book. Yes, absolutely. So so um, the, the S-curve is something that was originally articulated and devised by Everett M. Rogers in 1962. And the reason he set up the S-curve or came up with this idea was he was trying to understand how quickly ideas or innovation will be adopted. And, so um, what he saw and picture in your mind the bottom or the base of the S is that at the low end, it, you're going to put in a lot of work and not much is going to look like it's happening. And so you're working, working, working. There's very little happening. But then once you hit sort of this penetration of 10 to 15% in a marketplace, you accelerate into hyper growth, which is the steep and sleek back of the curve, so you move up very, very quickly. And then at the top of the curve, you're approaching saturation, which is typically 90%. And again, you could be doing a lot to move it forward, but very little is happening as you move sort of move across the time axis. And so what I've done is I've taken this S-curve that helps us understand how quickly innovation will, will be adopted because there are lots of time delays around this, which also happens with us as individuals. When we're trying something new, there are time delays. So initially, you're going to put in a lot of effort, like you take on a new job and you're working, working, working really hard and you come home every night and you feel like you have no idea what you're doing or you're starting a business and you come home every night and you feel like you're making no progress. You have no traction. Well, that's, that's to be expected at the bottom of this S and so that knowing that helps you avoid discouragement but then Once you've started to put in six months worth of work, you accelerate into that steep part of the curve, and that's the exciting part of the curve where all of your synapses are firing. That's the sweet spot of the curve. And so there you're beginning to be very competent and confident. And then at the top of the curve, you now know you're approaching mastery. You'll be able to run your business really smoothly. You'll be able to do this role very easily. But because it's gotten so easy, You're no longer enjoying the feel-good effects of learning, and so you can have boredom and complacency kick in, at which point you need to jump from the crest of the wave that you're on to a new wave and start to surf a new one. And so my premise is is that the S-curve helps us understand the psychology of disruption, and it also helps us understand that if we as companies or individuals can learn to master these S-curve waves of learning and mastering, then we're going to have a competitive advantage in our era where things are changing at an ever-quickening pace. Right, right. I mentioned
1: when we started that that the way that the title of the book is phrased – Uh, it really makes it sound like your audience for the book are individuals that need to think about disrupting where they are versus writing corporately to corporations that need to disrupt. Yet the information that you impart in the book is equally applicable whether you're thinking as an entrepreneur or an individual uh, or you do lead a large company that has been perhaps in a commodity business that really hasn't gone out and, and done any thought leadership or anything right. new. And they they really haven't taken a lot of risks.
0: Well one of my key premises here is that companies don't disrupt people do, and that the fundamental unit of disruption is the individual. So if you're looking to drive corporate innovation, the best way to do that is through personal disruption. And I'm so glad that you sort of saw what I was trying to do in the book, because I do toggle back and forth continuously between or continually i would say between you know individual examples and corporate examples so that people can see how this works at both levels and so it does apply to an individual that feels like they need to reboot their career but it also applies to an organization that's trying to innovate trying to drive excuse me, to a corporation that's trying to drive innovation if they will allow their people inside of their company to disrupt themselves because the data says that when they can do that, when they're able to develop capabilities before they need them, people are going to be more engaged, they're therefore going to be more productive and therefore the company is going to be more innovative and therefore your ROI on anything, your ROI becomes higher. You know, in, in the first chapter of the book where you're talking about taking the
1: right risks, you start with a quote from Henry David Thoreau, uh, which focuses on Columbus, which I, I think is a really interesting picture, particularly as an entrepreneur myself who is kind of sailing away from, from the coast of comfort, uh, yet not sure whether the world is flat or round yet, right? And and right. going out into, uh, you know, the, the, the dark night of, of the waters and not knowing where it's going to take you right and and in this quote from Thoreau it the quote is be a columbus to whole new continents and worlds within you opening new channels not of trade but of thoughts and you know to my point earlier i think that so many uh, corporate leaders or or even entrepreneurs who who kind of decide to break away from corporate life you know, take a look at how things have been done, and it is so easy just to do incremental change, right? And, right. and not really having that whole new world uh, opened up to you, believing that, that things actually can be completely different and, moreover, should be different in, in a particular industry. So talk to us about taking the right
0: risks, and, and where do you actually begin? Yes. All right. So let me first define what I mean by the right risk. So there are two kinds of risks that I talk about in this book in, in particular, and one is competitive risk, and the second one is market risk. and. So competitive risk is if someone comes to you and says, there's this huge market opportunity out there and I've got the projections to prove it. Well, if there's competitive risk, what that means is that someone else has probably scoped out the market. There's a kingpin. It's not you. So you can be confident there will be customers but you have to figure out if you can compete and win. So that's competitive risk. Now, market risk is where someone comes to you um, and says, I don't know if there's a market, I I just don't know, but I think there's a job that people want done. Um, And so at that point, then you don't know if there will be customers, for your idea or for you per se or your company. But if there are customers because you're the first mover, you're you're favored to own the market. And now this obviously applies on both a corporate level, but it also applies on an individual level. So, you know, when I moved into equity research from being in investment banking, I was really excited about it. I'd started to build my financial model and um, I was covering the cement and construction sector and then they announced that Barney would merge with Solomon Brothers and Solomon actually already had a cement and construction analyst that was really highly regarded. And so all of a sudden I found myself in this position of like, well, I don't have a job. Now I'm taking on competitive risk and I was going to lose because she was well established and I was starting out. And so as the theory of disruption would dictate, rather than knocking on the cement door that was closed, I built my own door and I started to cover the media sector because it was a brand new sector. There were a number of companies going public. And so, and because I did that within a year, I was also a ranked analyst. So this obviously can apply on a corporate level and an individual now level. The, the rub with all of the competitive versus market risk is that competitive risk, Feels, it feels less risky to us because it's more certain, and we tend to like certainty. But if you can deal with the uncertainty of market risk, you're much more likely to be successful. And as I said earlier, your odds of success go up by six times. And so that's the thing we have to figure out is we know that competitive risk is more risky, but market risk feels more risky, so we have to figure out how to sort of trick ourselves into taking on market risk. Hmm.
1: Interesting. And, you know, I, I look at my own company right now, and, and we have in the travel industry, and specifically in online travel, we have so many giants. In fact, Expedia just uh, in the last 18 months gobbled up both uh, Travelocity and Orbitz. And Orbitz has oh, already wow. owned some of the brands in Europe. So, So now we really have – well – in in online travel we have a two player game between Priceline and Expedia unless you also count Tripadvisor who uh started out uh you know, coming into the industry just with the review side of the market. Now, of course, they've become an online travel player as well. So yeah. anybody coming in into that market, and, and I love that perspective that you just shared, because if if someone asks me why I'm doing what I'm doing, which is really turning <laughs> online travel on its head, they would say, you have got to be crazy. Have you looked at the market cap for Priceline lately? And the answer is yes, I have. But the problem is they are so stuck in the status quo that the competitive risk is really pretty low for me, even though, Mm -hmm. though they've got very deep pockets that if they figured it out, And then focusing on the market side, the market opportunity of doing things differently in my industry, you know, I think that it's not risky at all because it's been done badly for so long, and people have accepted the way that it's been done. Um, So I I think there,
0: Chicky, is that Mm -hmm. the more you can be doing, you're in your business this silly little thing that they disregard, and to do something that for them, the the incumbents, you know, whether it's Expedia. Um, or price line that, from a margin perspective, makes absolutely no sense for them, then you're in a great position.
1: Oh, totally, totally. And, you know, that leads us to Chapter 2, which talks about playing to your distinctive strengths. And, you know, as I talk to potential clients, I talk about how, you know, with our product, what we're doing is we're turning the whole travel dialogue on its head. Because right now, and and you probably don't even realize this, we talked about a air travel earlier and living in primary cities and secondary cities. But what you probably mm-hmm. don't realize is that whenever you're going somewhere, whether you use an online travel agent, Marriott.com, or you know a traditional travel agent, they force you into telling them, what city center or airport you're going to. They never, ever ask where your ultimate destination is. And so we're bringing forward that as our distinctive strength, that we have venue and event-based travel planning, uh, which you know people can't even believe that it hasn't been done that way. Uh, you know, and I've been in the travel industry for forty years and and once I've realized it, it was like so crystal clear to me. but anyway, talk to me about playing to your distinctive strengths because do you think people really understand what their strengths are that they can contribute no. um to <laughs> disrupting things
0: yeah i think I think there's a two two piece two bold piece to this um So obviously the distinctive strength is something that you do well that other people do not. But to your point that you just brought up is do we even know what our strengths are in the first place, which I think the answer is no, not necessarily. And even when we do know what they are, we don't want to use them. So let me talk about sort of how you can figure out what your strengths are. I know there are a lot of amazing tests out there, but some things that I use to help me help others figure out what their strengths are is, is the first question is just to ask people what makes them feel strong. Um, You know, like specifically, like what makes them feel invigorated, inquisitive, successful when they're doing it and observe throughout the course of the day, what are those things? And specifically, what's your go-to activity when you're feeling under stress? Because whenever you're, and I don't mean like eating a quart of Haagen-Dazs ice cream, I'm like, you know, constructive, non-self-sabotaging things. And whatever that thing is, it's you're doing it because it makes you feel strong. And when you feel strong, you feel under control and orders restored. And for some people, it's like doing spreadsheets. For some people, it's doing code. For other people, it's you know going out and having lunch with a, a client and and getting a new piece of business. So for everybody, it's different. The second thing I look at is what exasperates you. One of the things that's interesting is that like the frustration of genius is believing if it's easy for you, it must be easy for everybody else. But one of the things that will happen is that you you may be so, you may have colleagues that aren't incompetent that you're prodigy like in that one area and you don't know how to tell people how to do what you want done because you don't know how you know. And so if you look at <laughs> what exasperates you, you're pretty likely to figure out like what your, what your strengths are. And the third one I think is probably the most critical is what are the compliments that you dismiss either because it's so natural for breathing you so natural for you it's like breathing you think ah it's nothing like it's so easy to do like why are they complimenting me on this or you look at it and you think oh, why do they keep complimenting on it? I've worked so hard on this other thing and no one notices how hard I worked and and this thing that I'm doing right now is super easy. And it's likely that that's one of your strengths because it's super easy for you. And so the thing that happens is that you've got all these strengths and yet because we overvalue what we are not, are, sorry, we overvalue what we are not, we undervalue what we are, the very thing That is our biggest strength we don't want to use because we don't value it. So we not only struggle to know what our strengths are, but once we do know what they are, we don't want to use them. And so one of the things that I find is key for people in moving up a curve as a business or as an individual is to deliberately focus on those strengths and not use them just to fix things when things are going wrong, but to make sure that whatever business you're in, you're using that deliberately and you're much more likely to be successful.
1: Mm, I love that. And, you know, it's so funny. As I was looking at that chapter, I was thinking about particularly with the entrepreneurial hat on, that we quite often look at our competitors or those around us, and we see money as their strengths right? We see huh. a well-funded yeah. company or we see, yeah. I mean, you know, I pay a lot of attention to who's getting capital in my industry, right? Because that right. indicates where innovation is going, right? Hopefully. And, and quite often I undervalue my strengths not because they aren't, you know, all the things that you talked about uh, of being strong and invigorated because of them. And, and uh, you know, I love the perspective that uh, you just shared about the things that exasperate you and the compliments that you might have missed. But, you know, putting our strengths in, in the light that we can actually monetize them um, by either getting somebody to believe in us and invest in us or convincing clients to believe in us and to try a product that maybe is – Perceived as inferior, you know, like the original Toyota product or the mm-hmm. the phone quality uh, in Mexico originally, um, but that actually becomes much stronger and can can bypass and surpass the market position of the other company and and so that that barrier and and perhaps this plays in into the next chapter, which is about embracing constraints and one of the constraints mm-hmm. of an early stage company um, is that we often don't have the capital to do things the way that we want, or you look at a large business that wants to move into something new, but their constraint is the quarter-to-quarter profitability of being a public company, right? Right. And that... Right. Something that's going to take a lot of investment will pull down their quarter-to-quarter profitability, and that's not okay for shareholders. So I know right. you've worked in, in the investment community uh, for a very long time uh, with different hats on. So can you put these two things uh, you know, a little bit in that light of how people look at their strengths and their constraints in getting over that barrier of, of being a well-funded business?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I love that, that, that sort of distinction that you drew about the constraint of the quarterly earnings. So I, I would say first of all, one of the things that's interesting about constraints is that Um, whenever you're trying something new and you're trying to make progress, um, you actually need lots of information, like a lot of feedback, like, how am I doing? Is it working? You, you, you sort of, you need that. And one of the best ways to get that is actually to have constraints. And so, because you're bumping up against it. And I, I often think of the image of a skateboarder. They're really quick learners because it gets fast and really useful feedback because like every action, every move has this immediate consequence. And so, For me, I look at constraints as a way actually to help you figure out what your strengths are, like constraints actually, because when you're in a bind, the only thing that you often have available to you are your strengths, and your strengths oftentimes come out because that's sort of that's all you have. And so I think constraints are really, really helpful to us in that way. Um, and one thing that I think is so interesting is the movie Jaws that we all, I don't know if we love, but we certainly revere. Uh, I'm not sort of <laughs> And an are attracted to it person. in a strange and yeah, weird way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, we think about this as this amazing movie, but what we don't know, Is that it wouldn't be this amazing movie if Steven Spielberg hadn't been over budget and behind schedule because he had this huge malfunctioning mechanical shark. It wasn't working. And so eventually had to say, okay, what am I going to do to move this forward? And so what happened? He said, I'm just going to film this from the point of view of this shark, have this movie that have this music that's incredibly, you know, we can all sing it. And that's what allowed this film to swim to, you know, huge box office success. And so the constraint ended up becoming a tool of creation. Um, so I think that's one thing that's really important, certainly for people at the low end of the curve, is understanding that whether you've got a lack of time or money or buy-in, how do you use that to, to flip that on its head and actually become a tool of creation that actually allows you to move up the curve and to think about things more smartly and play to your strengths, which you need in, in the long run in order for you to be successful. Um, to your question about the quarterly earnings, it's, it's a really – it's an interesting question. I mean, having been a sell-side analyst and looking at companies and, you know, dinging them, I remember when uh, America Mobile put out uh, Straight Talk, you know, the the uh, wireless – or the prepaid phone card. We all were like, what is Carlson doing We we ding him and ding him and ding him? And now it has like 50% of the prepaid wireless in the United States. I think this is one of those times where actually – um a CEO of a publicly traded company has to be willing to just say, you know what, it's okay that my stock price gyrates and is a little bit more um, you know, fluctuates a little bit more than usual because I understand that we have to make these investments. That takes a that takes a very sturdy CEO, and it also takes a board who's not judging them on quarterly earnings um, in right. terms of giving them stock prices. But I think if they are willing to do that, then they're able to. Um, and so the constraint here becomes a willingness to not be liked by everybody. And if they're willing to do that, then they're much more likely over the long term to generate huge value and returns for their shareholders
1: right right and you know it's so interesting i've been following the major players in in the travel industry uh well, I've had my consulting firm for twenty years now, and so mm-hmm. I've really been tracking them that that entire time. And the three major players in the global distribution arena, which are the people who put technology on the desktops of travel agencies and who power, uh, you know, some of the online travel capabilities, those three companies all went public um, at about the same time in the late late nineties, uh, you know, early mm-hmm. two thousand timeframe. And then, strangely enough. Uh, they all went to private equity you know for uh, at yep. about the same time you know three or four years later, and now they 've all gone back public but during the time um when they were private companies originally, uh, you know, before they went public, they were amazing innovators. And and they were really yep. changing the face of travel distribution, even right up to the time when the Internet came on the scene and, and changed things forever. Uh, and, you know, Saber, who was one of those uh, three major companies, oh, yeah. launched Travelocity mm-hmm. and, you know, Amadeus, uh, you know, did a lot of things in, in their markets um, outside the, the U.S. primarily. But I'll tell you what, innovation just came to an absolute crawl. Um, yep. Yet, uh, and and I want to lead into Chapter 4, which has has a little bit of an odd title that I want you to, to share with us, but it, it reminds me of these three companies because they, they all battled head to head. But by, by the time they all went public, they, they really were all commodities, and none of them were innovating. And so I don't know whether what killed the innovation was – the quarter-to-quarter focus, or it was the fact that they they were so uh, focused on killing each other, right? That 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 battle focus. Yeah. And and chapter four's mm-hmm. title is "Battle Entitlement: The Innovation mm-hmm. Killer." And so, you know, I'd like to understand what what your thought was, um, you know, as you pick that title, because I think that's a very very interesting title for a chapter. And then talk to us about when innovation gets killed.
0: Yeah, so um, some really interesting insights, Chicky. so um, just brava. Um, <laughs> I, I, what I would say, so the reason I chose battle entitlement is that as soon as you start to um, see the fruits of taking these right kinds of risks of playing where no one else is playing and playing to your distinct constraints and you embrace your constraints, you're going to start gaining momentum um, if you're on the right curve. And as you start to gain momentum, right at the moment where you need to be, looking for more constraints is that moment where you start to get complacent and you start to believe that this is the way things should and will always be. And in that moment, if you're if you're focused on that instead of trying to figure out what curve you're going to need to jump to next and what capabilities you're going to need, you can start to stagnate and you can even have this toxicity that gets you so focused on how awesome you are, patting yourself on the back, you just slide back down the curve and so um and so the reason I use the battle entitlement is we literally have to battle it because the more successful we become the research says the more we think we deserve what we have so the more entitled we become you know become to what we have and my my view is is that entitlement comes in lots and lots of guises there's cultural entitlement there's emotional entitlement and I think um I think that, you know, emotional entitlement comes in the guise of, you know, when other people do well, then we get upset because our feelings should be protected at all costs and therefore we're not going to congratulate other people. And that kind of, you know, sort of backstabbing, I'm not happy for my colleagues means that no one's able to progress because we're all jealous of them as opposed to just saying, let's move forward as a team, let's figure out how to work together, let's push this innovation up to the top of that S-curve so that we can go on to the next curve.
1: Mm. Well, and the jumping from curve to curve is what I think so many companies that have been industry leaders for a long time, what they miss. And, you know, it, it it's almost heartbreaking right now to watch what's happening with Yahoo!, and, you yeah. know, they were such an innovator in in the beginning. And then, you know, they just got eclipsed by both Microsoft and, and Google. And although they partnered with Microsoft on the advertising front and trying to um, – you know, really battle Google together. Um, you know, it was really amazing, um, and, and I look at all of them now and, and wonder if they're all feeling entitled, and and who else can come in and disrupt that, right? And and with and they what will. innovation are they going to do that?
0: Yeah, and I, you know, it's interesting. Yahoo is a great example of that, where you know, they they really, they flipped the whole revenue model on its head by introducing banner ads. But then they, what's difficult is that by introducing banner ads, they got more and more profitable and the margins expanded more and more. And so it was very difficult for them to make a logical case for looking at the content market in mobile. It just, it was illogical and we all like logic. And so they missed those markets and now those markets are eating their lunch. And so I think that's the thing for us as individuals is right at the moment where we start to feel very successful in in whatever we're doing, whether it's, you know, the writing that we're doing or the business that we're growing or, you know, we feel successful on the job or the speaking that we're doing. And those moments when we feel most successful, we tend to want to just enjoy it. And we get to enjoy it, but we also need to be figuring out how we can disrupt ourselves because someone else will if we don't do it ourselves.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So chapter five is an
1: interesting one too, because you talk about how sometimes you need to step down back yeah. or sideways in order to grow. And you know, we have been so uh geared and really from the time that we're small that that growing is you know, taking a step up, whether it's the ladder metaphor or, you know, walking up up stairs or, you know, growing within a company by moving up in position and you know i i know i've seen many of my colleagues over the years who have taken a lateral to go perhaps from from sales into operations right to yeah. understand the perspective of delivery of a product versus just selling it and that once they've done that then they tend to get promoted to a position that that uh, is over both of those roles so, example. give us some examples of where stepping down, back, or sideways actually can help you with this this whole issue of disrupting yourself, and 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 what power that can give you in your life.
0: Yeah. So, so the, the stepping, I mean, there's the, kind of the obvious one, building on the example that you just shared of of a colleague or a fellow by the name of Dave Blakely, who started his career at Ido, and he was an engineer. And he could have worked his way up to Ben's technical staff, but he decided, you know what, I think I want to become a, a project manager. And so all of his engineering peers, like, dismiss this. You know, this is just an escape route from the rigor and detail of engineering. But the backward move, like the perceived backward move, allowed him to start to climb this new ladder and eventually – When he left IDEO a year and a half ago, he was the head of all of technology strategy because he had those different skill sets that he had been able to to agglomerate over the course of his 25-year career. So that is kind of the obvious lateral move. Um, There are other types of stepping back. can be, for example, just taking a break from your work to figure out what it is you're doing. You feel like you don't have time to step back, but the best possible thing you can do is to step back get greater perspective another kind of stepping back is to ask someone who knows something has an area of expertise that you don't know where you are at risk of looking or feeling dumb in order to move yourself forward and oftentimes I think we don't ask ask for advice or expertise because we don't want to look dumb and yet that step back is what will allow us to propel forward and so that's and so that's what I mean by stepping back is that And when you think about, there's sort of the grow metaphor, but there's also the metaphor, if you're jumping off the diving board, you crouch down before you go out. When you're rowing a boat, you take your your oars back before you can move forward. And so there's a lot that actually suggests that you do have to move back before you can go forward. And so that's what I'm proposing here is that um, in order to really move up a curve or to move forward on the grand curve that is our life, sometimes we have to go down in order to go up. Right. And,
1: you know, I'm I'm just experiencing that in my own company. I, I launched our new product, the minimum viable product for this new capability last June. And you know, six months later, uh, at the end of, of December, I was sitting back and, and looking at the things that had happened and the different decisions I had made because this particular venture I'm I'm completely bootstrapping uh, and self funding. Okay. And you know, I I had brought on amazing advisors, you know, who were giving me um, you know really excellent advice. And one of those was to pause. Right. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's kind of uh, the the corollary to stepping down back or sideways is sometimes you just have to stop right yeah. and and so i've just done that in my business and said okay now where do i want to get and what is holding me back right what is my constraint in that growth and it's not entitlement right it's not mm-hmm. not being in mm-hmm. that place but it 's that that battle that I was talking about kind of between Chapter Two and three, of looking at my competitors you know being so well funded and looking at all these ideas that are getting funded that really aren 't that disruptive right, or, right. or even exactly. all that good exactly. and they 're getting exactly. you know five, ten twenty million dollars in funding and, and so sitting back. And and pausing long enough to say, okay, what's it going to take to accelerate this? And for me, it's putting that um, pride, if you will, in being self-funded aside, and saying, you know what, maybe it's time to raise money. And I I have mm-hmm. the confidence in my disruptive idea that that I can actually do that. And yeah. and I believe that 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 pausing or that self-reflection, you know, of looking back, and, and this happens in corporate life, too, not just with entrepreneurs, but, you know, looking back at what's happened and what could we do differently to really change the pace. And uh, right. you know to turn the dial up in a big way. Now, Chapter Six is is one that is near, and also near and dear to my heart. <laughs> Since I'm a serial entrepreneur, we all yeah. have to give failure its due, which is is the title of that chapter. And uh, I always say to investors, potential investors, that I've already had my spectacular failure, so I'm a pretty good risk
0: yeah. <laughs> because I yeah, have
1: exactly. understood failure as teacher. So, so talk about the role of failure uh, in disruption and and in growth.
0: Well, so it's interesting. When I first started this chapter, and, in fact, I had written a piece on failure for HBR prior to this, and I called it putting failure in its place, like, you know, putting it down. But I realized later that we actually – failure is integral to this whole process of our our disruption, and there's two kinds of failures. There's sort of the – there's the um, – Lean Startup kind of iterate quickly, you know, failure where you're learning, 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 you know, figuring stuff out. And then there's the big failures. And I was really focused in this book on sort of the big failures, those things what you do and you have, you know, dreamed and you've envisioned this goal and you think you're going to be hailed the conquering hero and then it just doesn't work and you're devastated. And so One of the things um, that I talk about are some of my failures and, um, you know, like being fired and, you know, bombing speeches in front of lots of people and this realization that I have to and we all have to give our failures due in the sense of we need to grieve. Like we need to allow ourselves to be sad when things don't work. And we also need to allow the people around us to be sad when things don't work. Because once we're willing to be sad, it means that we really cared about it, we were really Invested in it, and that will and that energy that we have around that will allow us allow us to then move forward and ask those questions like, okay, I'm going to ditch the shame. I'm going to um, figure out. Well, sorry, I'm complaining two things. Number one, ask questions like, what did I learn from the failure? And then number two, and most importantly, when we allow ourselves to grieve, we are able, I think, better to not make the failure a referendum on us. We're sad, but we realize, okay, it's this thing I did, but this is not tied to who I am and my fundamental worthiness and value as a human being. And so I think it's just an integral part of the process. We have to be sad, then we have to ditch to the shame, we have to move forward, and the, the fact that we're sad about it means that it really mattered to us, and so now we proceed ahead. And so this chapter was important and personal to me, and I'm sure you probably picked up on that.
1: Oh, definitely, definitely. And so the the last chapter of the book, Whitney, is called Be Driven by Discovery. And I love that word. So, So tell us what that means to you.
0: Yeah, so... So when you think about disruption, um I talked earlier about taking on market risk and um not knowing if there's a market there. And because as a disruptor then you're searching for a yet to be defined market, which means that you can't develop this step by step plan to achieve your goal and like, you know, perform this detailed market analysis because you don't even know if there's a market. And so you have to just take a step forward and gather feedback and adapt accordingly. And so um my my view here is that, yes, you need to have a why, and you need to know what, what animates and motivates you, but in the process of trying to move forward, you have to be willing to just kind of take a step into the dark and then figure out what comes next, and it's important to know that 70% of all successful new businesses end up with a strategy that's different from the one they initially started with. And so that's actually really helpful because you say, oh, I don't need to know exactly where I'm going. I just need to to move forward, get lots of information, and then adapt, and then just keep moving forward. And you're much more likely to be successful that way and lose a lot less money because you're iterating as you go.
1: You know, Whitney, uh, as as I'm thinking back to your last book, um, you know, it it really – Ties in, and, and I'm sure as you were writing this one, you were thinking back, uh, to what you talked about in that book. Because the tagline for Dare Dream Do was that remarkable things happen when you dare to dream. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a part of disruption is, is dreaming, right, dreaming that something is possible, maybe that, you know, a a new market is possible, a new product is possible, a new way of doing things, and, you know, uh, I suggest in, in the travel industry that it is possible to plan your trip right to where you're going. And, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that, you know, I've got this colleague who who has just passed away, and there are a lot of people who want to go to her funeral. And if you don't know the area where she lives, you would never know what hotels are close to the funeral home. Well, our launch product was trip enabling the obituary. And I mean, it's kind of a Mm -hmm. an odd place to go in travel, but I knew that that was a marketplace that really needed help. And so it was my dream to make things easier, whether you're going to a hospital our first product was hotels by hospitals and and you know that that dreaming um, and and then believing that you can actually do it daring to step out and daring to actually do what you have dreamt and I remember that that the sequence of dare dream and do was actually really important in that we don't have time to go into that but as you were writing disrupt yourself how did you think about what you had said in that first book how did you tie them together? That's
0: such a great question because for a long time I didn't know what the connection was. It, you know, I think people thought that I just knew I had some explicit connection, and I didn't know. I just I knew they were somehow connected because they were both coming out of my brain. <laughs> but um, but I I eventually realized that that dreaming is actually the engine of disruption because once you get to the top of that curve and you're ready to jump from the top of a mountain down into a valley or from the top of a wave to a new wave, there's a moment of free fall. And your dreams are the thing that sustain you in that moment of free fall, the dreaming of for a better life, this and when when you have that dream you're you're hungering for that better life and you have that dream you're you become a problem solver and you're just not going to let anything stand in your way and so Mm. I realized then that we had to have dreams in order for us to disrupt because otherwise we just wouldn't it it would just be too scary because it's truly a scary thing and that's usually what stops people from trying something new and so that's for me, eventually, how I connected the two is that the dreaming is at the heart of, or it's it's, it's what engines the the willingness to to disrupt ourselves. Wow.
1: Well, what a perfect uh, end to this interview, because that that really ties it together for me. And, uh, you know, I certainly have been in that moment of free fall. And you're right, the only thing that can sustain you, uh, you know, because you do look back uh, at your previous failures and you wonder if, you know, if this is just going to be a repeat of that. And, and so many things come in. but. Um, you know, so I, I'm seeing a picture of your dreams actually being the, the uh,
0: oh, They're the parachute. parachute.
1: They're the right. parachute. Oh, I think yeah. I see a cover for your next book.
0: Yeah. They're the parachute. <laughs> they packed your pack parachute. And, and actually, you'll love this. I didn't even think of this until just now. Um, one of the reviewers of the book, um, the Boston Globe, said, you know, ask the question, is Disrupt Yourself? So, what color is your parachute for the entrepreneurial generation? And oh, I didn't wow. even make that connection until just now when we were having, just now when you said that. Oh, Pretty
1: that's cool. amazing! That's amazing. Yeah. So, so Whitney, one of the things I like to do at the end of the show is uh, to have you just share really quickly uh, how people can get in touch with you. You know, kind of what's your day job right now, um, and and how can they learn more? And if they wanted you to speak, uh, how can they get in touch with you for that?
0: Great. Thank you for asking. Um, so my day job right now is I, I write and I speak and I advise companies and people and I and I coach. And um, the best way to get in touch with me and to stay in touch is probably to sign up for my newsletter that I put out every two weeks. And I'm I'm really vigilant about like. My- having real content in there so it's worth reading you can either go to my website whitneyjohnson.com and sign up or you can send me an email at whitney at whitneyjohnson.com and just say sign me up and i'll i'll sign you up and um i would of course love to hear from you and you can also follow me on twitter at johnson whitney
1: fabulous. Well, Whitney, thank you so much. I'm going to uh, end the formal part of the show right here and then you and I can uh, just chat for a second before you have to run. Uh, again, thank everyone so much for joining us today. And if you'd like to learn more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, you can go to executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. Join uh, the Executive Girlfriends Group if you are so inclined. Thanks again so much for listening and we'll talk to you next
0: You've been listening to The Game Changer, ideas, inspiration, innovation, with Chickie Fitzgerald.